When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the RSN WTF Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. That was one of your better ones. I see what you did there, young man. <laughs> I, I really like that. And what the, is the right? We, I mean, boy, we have some change. And, you know, Evan, last night when we broke the story, there was a lot of, okay, so what does this all mean? And you're fielding questions. What does this mean for specific RSNs? We knew change was coming. We hear about a, maybe a, a looming bankruptcy coming. And we know that the creditors are involved. So we, we thought we'd get a little help. One of the things we do on this show is admit, and Lee, you're going to like this, we admit we don't know everything. Wow. <laughs> media to pretend they know everything. So what we do is when we don't know something, one, we admit it to ourselves and each other, and then we go to people smarter than we are. That's where you come in, Lee Burke. Uh, you have been working in television for a very long time, consult now to a, a number of folks in the industry. So if I may very simply, 30,000 foot view, let's just say Eben said WTF. What do you say to the you know somebody who's like, WTF, what does this mean? Well, first I would apologize to Mark Marin because... <laughs> Got that cease and desist letter already on the way. That's right. That's right. Um, but what does it mean? It means that the established way of offering up local sports content that's been in place now ever since 1969 when MSG Network first started. We have, Evan, we finally have something on this show that predates Sashnik. <laughs> <laughs> Took a while. Uh, that model is breaking apart. It's under tremendous stress, and it was something that people think they didn't have to, didn't have to address for another 10 years or so pre-pandemic, and the pandemic uh, revved things up dramatically, and now it's become a major issue, and it's a major issue for every RSN out there, every league and team associated with an RSN, and it's in particular a major issue for Bally Sports because of all the debt that was incurred for purchasing those RSNs from Fox. At, at, by the way, if you want to say the price, because Disney had had the RSNs, 
sold to Fox at a certain number, sold now to Bally's um, or Sinclair. I mean, if, if people want to know better, it, I sold to Sinclair. For, like flat out, did they not see the change coming? Did they overpay? Was it impossible to see the change? How would you analyze? If somebody said, how did they get themselves in this situation? What would the response be? I, I would, you know, I would go to the numbers and the, the numbers actually tell the story here. When Disney purchased the bulk of the networks from Fox, not just RSNs, but everything from FX to FXX and, and so on down the line, the movie studio. Um, ultimately, uh, they valued the RSNs at that point at around $24 billion. Mm. And uh, DOJ, Department of Justice, came in and said those networks, uh, with too much concentration of sports content in one entity, mainly ESPN, that they had to sell those RSNs off to another party. So essentially, Disney held on to the RSNs for about two or three months and then sold them off to a, 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 a group of bidders, and the bidder that won was Sinclair. And Sinclair is, relatively speaking, a smaller entity compared to the size of the RSNs. They were valued at around $24 billion dollars. Sinclair ended up purchasing them at around $9.6 billion, which is seemingly at that point a, a substantial discount and reflective of the fact that, gee, down the horizon, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in streaming, needs to be addressed, and that ultimately in doing so, uh, they would have some time in order to make that transition. Uh, a long, long time ago, ABC was purchased by a group called Cap Cities, much smaller entity ended up selling it to Disney for a very healthy profit. Uh, but ultimately, they uh, spent a lot of money uh, and used a lot of debt in order to acquire those RSNs with the idea that they have a breathing space pre-pandemic, this was in 2019, to ultimately be able to uh, make the switch over to uh, streaming sometime in the near future. Did, but- didn't they read Barbarians at the Gate? <laughs> Yeah, you, you would have to check their reading list. On oh, it. my friend John Hellyer's book. I mean, come on. There's, there are lessons to be learned. And, anyway. and that's the thing. What was supposed to ha- be a decade of transition where the drop off in viewership and subscribership on cable television on MVPDs was dropping off at one, two, three percent a year, suddenly became six, seven, eight, nine percent a year. And suddenly there was a very substantial need to offer up streaming. Unfortunately, as a smaller company, Sinclair wasn't able to move quickly enough to come up with a viable model for streaming. Meanwhile, their revenues were dropping for the RSNs precipitously uh, to the point where, and this is the ultimate number, when the RSNs were sold, the cash flow combined for them was somewhere over $1.6 billion. Uh, Now, uh, according to Bally's most recent uh, earnings call, the projected yearly cash flow for the RSNs is 160 million. Wow! <laughs> so wow. roughly an 80 to 90 percent drop, and you now have, as I mentioned, they incurred a lot of debt to purchase those RSNs at 9.6 billion. They incurred 8.6 billion dollars worth of debt, <laughs> and based on the uh, bonds that they uh, issued in order to Handle that purchase. The interest payment per year is roughly five hundred to six hundred million. 
So, so you can do the math pretty easily that you're not able to pick up the uh, interest payments out of the cash flow that you're having from these RSNs as their cable audience drops. I want to I want to make sure that I'm thinking about this right. So so tell me if if I'm on the right track here. The, I have thought for a long time for for decades it seems like the RSN business was really good. If if you were a local fan of a NBA, NHL or Major League Baseball team, essentially the only way to consistently watch all of the games of your favorite team was to do that through the RSN. And and not only did they have that going for them, but the way the cable bundle worked for so long is that if you lived in Boston and you did not care about the Red Sox at all, you were still paying in your cable bill a pretty sizable number just for just to get Nesson whether you were watching it or not. So so RSNs essentially had the monopoly on the content and also had a whole bunch of people that were paying them for their services that were never using the services and never really wanted them in the first place. And it sounds like you're saying that the accelerated cord cutting is now obviously eating into what was once a very, very nice, solid business model to the point now where the economics, the numbers you just read, Lee, it seems like the economics just don't make sense anymore. Dual they, revenue streams, right? That was the key always. Dual revenue subscribers and advertising. Dual yeah. revenue streams, substantial growth. I mean, you had the cable, cable MVPDs. You had cable, you had satellite, you had the telcos. They all needed to have RSNs as part of their bundle. And that's the, the magic of the bundle. The magic of the bundle is you're buying a lot of networks at a relatively inexpensive price per network. You're not necessarily watching all of them, but you're financially supporting all of them. So ultimately, uh, the model works well, extremely well, when cable subscribers, satellite subscribers, telco subscribers are growing. And that peak was hit at around 2010, 2011, before mm. the internet really became a driving force for distributing content. But then over the course of the next seven, eight years, that subscriber level peaked and started to drop 1%, 2% a year, not a huge amount. And you could increase your sub fees because these were uh, networks that you had to have or people would shift over to another distributor that did have them because you wanted to watch your hometown team. Uh, and that was all well and good until 2016, 17, 18, even then, 2 3% drop a year. It seemed like there was enough of a time. In fact, you take a look at ESPN Plus. When they launched in 2018, Iger, during his first go-round at Disney. Yeah, Iger said, part one. Yeah, said that, you know, we might eventually shift over the ESPN networks to streaming, but that was well in the future, like a decade. <laughs> when the pandemic hit, all that got revved up. People were dropping their their bundles. They were going towards streaming. They were Zooming. They were doing all sorts of things online for, for content that people never thought would be taking place over the course of the next several years to this extent. And, and ESPN was criticized for a very long time about dragging its feet, adopting ESPN Plus and going into the digital world. The the Diamond RSNs, the, these Bally RSNs, they just did that this year. This year is the first time that they had that digital over-the-top, uh, don't-need-a-cable-subscription offering. Do you think that they just took too long? Is, is, is that the story here, that they did not have a digital strategy early enough? Um, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. But it, it's not just Bally. It's the RSN industry in general. Mm, I mean, yeah. they dragged their feet. And by the way, I remember 2016 – 
uh, Disney admitted, yeah, they were dragging their feet. And what they did, though, was they purchased BAM Tech, mm-hmm. and which is now Disney Streaming Services. They now own all of it as of last week. It's now valued at somewhere over, I think, you know, five, six, seven billion dollars. Yeah, it was nine hundred million for the final fifteen percent that yeah. they did not own. Yeah, so I mean, it's a huge business, and it drives ESPN Plus, it drives Hulu, it drives Disney Plus, and they're ahead of that curve. Now, granted, they still got to turn profits for it, and that's a major issue for throughout the streaming. <laughs> the Iger Part Two will will focus on profitability of streaming services. That's correct. Um, but the RSNs dragged their feet, and they dragged their feet for, at the time, what was a very good reason, is they were embargoed by the cable industry, by their distribution agreements that said, look, you want to offer up your RSN, you can only offer it up as part of a bundled service. Hmm. You want to offer, it's so valuable to us that we're concerned that if you offer it up directly to consumers, then they'll drop cable, they'll drop telcos. And so as a result, they accepted these golden handcuffs. They got paid substantial amounts of sub fees. And you were talking about, uh, Scott, the, the, the sub fees. You're, you're generating, on average, five, six, seven dollars you know, per sub per month in a growing cable bundle. That's a huge amount of money. You're right. You're guaranteed a profit and, and a very healthy margin of return. When it shrinks, it's the exact opposite. It's the, 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 the downward spiral. And uh, and that's where the RSNs, which had accepted these golden handcuffs, suddenly realized, oh, my God, we've got to get out there. We've got to offer up streaming. Bally was leading the charge. But Bally, again, they've had limited resources. They're a smaller company. Uh, they were supposed to do it in 21. They finally ended up doing it in 22, uh, even in you know, limited amount. And they still haven't sold over baseball on doing it. They charge a very high price, $20 per sub per month. It's meant to protect the bundles, to protect the MVPDs. It doesn't necessarily protect the consumer in terms of what they want to watch at an affordable price. And they haven't announced those results. But again, the overall cash flow is the ultimate number here. And when you're dropping that precipitously, then you have a major financial issue on your hands. So, so if I'm a, a Royals fan and I watch the Royals religiously on on Fox Sports Kansas City, and I tell ask you Lee, what what, what does this actually mean for for me? Am I is there going to need to be a new delivery service? Does Fox Sports Kansas City go into bankruptcy? What actually changes for sports fans who have spent sixty plus years getting their local sports in this very specific way. What do you actually think is the end result here? Old men like me and you, Lee, I will say what happens if I can't see my Brett Saberhagen and George Brett? Yeah, understood. Understood. <laughs> well, yeah, th- there is there is one precedent here, and this actually goes back to 2014. You may recall that Comcast Sportsnet Houston went bankrupt, and you had a whole set of issues with the Rockets. I was owned by the Rockets, right. Yeah, that was Rockets. Les Alexander's RSN, yeah. And the Astros, previous yeah, ownership yes. by Drake McLean, I believe, when he owned the Astros. You know, And there are some dicey months. It goes into bankruptcy court. Bankruptcy courts, general understanding of them are that they can be very quick to move things out. They control a lot. They don't necessarily concern themselves with what's in the contract. They will concern themselves with what, how they make creditors whole. And so ultimately, they were able to keep the games on, but they restructured the deals, they restructured distribution and ended up being part of, uh, you know, what is now the AT&T RSNs, which is part of uh, WBD Sports. 
So uh, we could have a whole bunch of local rights kind of hitting the market in the wake of a, of a mass RSN bankruptcy. If, if I'm Amazon, thing. am I licking, licking my chops here? This, yeah, this, well, you're talking about two teams back in 2014. And by the way, that deal, that, that whole transaction in the court case was finally settled about a month ago. So <laughs> that's how long it can take to work itself out. You're talking here about Bally if they do go bankrupt. And there are multiple rating services that say that their debt is either going to be defaulted upon or go bankrupt in the next several months. And, and they're talking about in, in 2023. So the, the time is here. Uh, you're talking about 42 teams across Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL. And there's a lot of speculation out there. The court may say you keep on putting the games on, but we may not pay rights fees. And then you can strike a deal with the creditors and maybe – and. and I was at this media conference last week and Bally Sports was there. Uh, NBC Sports, Mark Lazarus was there. Uh, the new head of WDBD Sports was there. And they all use the term haircut. <laughs> and there were, there were more haircuts than in a barber you, shop. You know when the barber says, what number do you want? <laughs> Th this would be the smallest one that <laughs> the brings zero. it closest to the scalp. <laughs> yeah. and, and they're all saying, well, you know, the teams are going to have to take a haircut in their rights fees or else, you know, we, this is no longer viable. Uh, the, the reality is, I still believe strongly in the content. The content still does very well in terms of ratings, but this model is not working anymore. And the, the move that took place last night, the change in management is, is one step closer to this massive changeover that may well have to take place in order to revamp how these games are being distributed. Is there an RSN? Yes, Network here in New York has done things a little bit differently than a lot of these these other ones. Are there RSNs that you point to that that you think has have done smart things that are that are maybe protecting them a little bit more than than some others in terms of who they've brought on as investors or how they're delivering their content? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, yes, you bring up a really good point, and I, I co-authored the original business plan for Yes, but as it's gone through various iterations, they have now reached a point where they are now. Uh, co-owned by Amazon. They are placing 20 games a year on Amazon. They're placing some on broadcast. Uh, and, and by the way, also Sinclair. So, yeah. you know, that's Sinclair 20% investors move yeah. here on Sinclair's part, getting <laughs> it on the yes now. Right. It's right. And, and then take a look at NBC's uh, Sports Washington, which is now going to become Monumental Sports Washington, which is owned by the Leonces family. They've established an OTT platform there several years ago. And so the, the, the solution isn't necessarily, and, and it may be for Bally's, the, the, the possibility of bankruptcy court, it's revamping the model. It's revamping, it's, it's saying, look, where are people, you started an RSN, go back 50 years ago, where were people watching these games? Cable television, this great growing technology. Where are people watching games today? They're watching them, interestingly enough, more and more on broadcast television. They're watching them on streaming. There's lesser you know, viewership, but there's still substantial viewership to be had on cable, telcos, satellites. You need to be on all those screens. You need to reinvent the RSN to match up and offer up the distribution to the screens that viewers can be found and from a business standpoint where revenues can be generated. Well, Lee Burke, we, we started at, at the outset saying we're not that smart. Now, old man Soshnik may have been smart because as, as Novi Williams knows... <laughs> 
I never left the cable bundle. I'm one that's still there. As people complained about the price of their monthly cable bill, and remember, that's bringing broadband into your home as, as well. I always thought, I mean, and Adam Aaron's going to kill me this, you know, over at AMC, and he's got, a, he's got plenty to worry about. But I always thought, compared to going to a movie, that my monthly bill was pretty good. I got an array of options. My wife likes to watch some other channels that I don't watch, so I sample some different programming. There's a, you know, a, a, a focus group of one of 13 in, in my house, so he watches something else different from all three of us. And I always thought it was just a, a, a great deal for me. And so I never went streaming. And now I'm hearing the complaints on the aggregation streaming that the price is what they were paying for the cable bundle. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily that you're going to get a huge savings by doing it online or doing it on, a, on some DTC platform, but it's more question. And you've got, you know, a kid at home and, uh, and, and I, I, I have ch- children and the reality is people that are gr- uh, entering into the workforce, graduating from college, they are not going out and saying, gee, I got to get my cable bundle. It's, <laughs> it's not happening. It's not happening. The point year over year, the major cable operators are showing shrinkage in their video subs of 10% or more a year. And some smaller ones may drop video entirely because broadband is the most valuable thing they have to offer and highest margin product. So in the midst of that, bundles are shrinking. NBC Sports Network shut down. You're seeing other networks shut down or be consolidated. Uh, And in the midst of all that, uh, you're looking for the screens that can provide viability. And it's not just going to be cable anymore, particularly, and by the way, from a sports standpoint, from a team standpoint, you want your next generation of fans. And you find them on TikTok, you find them on Snapchat, you you, you find them on, dare I say something, is, is ByteDance going to own these these RSNs? No. <laughs> let, me, let me take you to the truly preposterous, no, that's not happening. But you're right, my focus group of one, he's on the Xbox and he's on his phone all the damn time. That's it. And, and that's where the games need to be because ultimately, if you're, you're, you're not born a Royals fan or a Yankees fan or, you know, or a Cavaliers fan, you watch it, you hear it, you see it. And if you can't watch it, that was one of the early warning signs here. Every The start of every season, I would see a lot of Twitter complaints going to the presidents of teams and owners of teams saying, how come I can't see my games? And the reason they can't see them is not because they're not available in the marketplace. They are. They're on cable. But you've got younger people that are on Twitter, and they're not going to subscribe to cable again in order to see these games. They can't see them on streaming services. They can't see them on VMVPDs like like uh, Sling or, or YouTube TV. They don't have RSNs on them. Well, Lee, you'll like this one. I, and Eben knows this story. I was driving back from a hockey tournament with my son, and there was some game on we wanted to watch. And old man moron goes to flick on the AM station and flick through to find it. My son, within 30 seconds, had a stream on his phone from somebody putting it on the Twitch channel. That's what happens as well. It gets pirated very, yeah. very easily. If, yeah. you don't, if you don't offer it up on streaming, then somebody will offer it up for you and not pay you anything for it. Right. All right, Lee Burke, thanks uh, so much for helping us clear it up because like we said, you know, Evan and I, not so smart. <laughs> glad, glad to help. Thanks for having me on. All right. Like I told you, Novi Williams, you know, Lee Burke, will, he'll, he'll just absolutely clarify, distill, I think, Anybody who had any questions about what's going on, what are the ramifications, what's at stake, has a better idea of why we're where we are and where we might be going. 
Yeah, and it, one of the things that stuck out to me there is is just how obvious it seems like this end result <laughs> seems to be for people who obviously who 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 cover that industry and and, and understood and, and and were reading the trend lines. Uh, but I do think that there's just going to be this period of massive uncertainty, both for teams and for and for fans, as all of this stuff begins to work its way out through bankruptcy court or through whatever other medium uh, and ends up taking root. Is there an opportunity for and these are wealthy people, we understand, and we know when they pull capital, they do fun things, perhaps for some combination of the NBA, MLB, and NHL to buy this bundle of uh, RSNs that really do show a huge chunk of their programming? I, I think the answer is is yeah. I mean, there's certainly an opportunity. Yeah, I think in an ideal world, I think if you were to ask a lot of young people the, the way they think these things, these contests should be delivered, it should be delivered through MLB.com or should be delivered through NHL.com. I think it is it is counterintuitive the way in which, and, and, and Lee did a really good job of breaking down the legacy of why this is, but the way in which all these rights are broken out into different channels, different networks owned by different media conglomerates, in different geographical zones, it does feel like the end solution. And if there's a financial way to make this work, is to is to do this all in 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 one easy platform. All right, we only got a little bit of time. We got a bunch of topics we wanted to touch on. Uh, you know who could write a check for this? A bunch of sovereign wealth funds. Oh if they yeah, wanted they could. To. But <laughs> but in analyzing their opportunities in sports, they just add another one, and that would be invest in the NBA, opening mm-hmm. up to wealth funds opening up to endowments. Might we see Harvard buying a piece of the Boston Celtics or any other team? Uh, and, uh, you know, just an expansion of institutional capital like pension funds. You know, Ontario Teachers once was in an MLSE. Maybe they'll go back. Um, once again, the NBA sort of uh, looking at the landscape and leading the way. Yeah, the latest the latest in, and you mentioned it there, the latest in the NBA and, and really all these leagues minus the NFL so far, embracing new types of capital that can invest in teams. Uh, and the 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 NBA was the first to to allow private equity investments two years ago. Now, Scott, there have been a, a number of them in a number of franchises, and opening up this avenue to uh, sovereign wealth funds, which would obviously need individual approval by by the league, opening it up to pension funds and to and to endowments just means more potential buyers and the, the per, age old adage driving valuations. It, yeah, it's going to drive values up. There's more people interested in stakes, more bidders equals more money. So uh, a, a value accretion for sure for for every NBA team now that this is on the table. I'm fascinated to see how often these these groups actually do invest. D- does the sovereign wealth fund in, in in Singapore buy in immediately? Is it is it a slower build? Do you ever see endowments? Joking. We were Are joking. they interested? I, I mean, there's so much. We were joking in the office about uh, let's pair the sovereign wealth fund with like the name of the club. Like, is it going to be the Piff <laughs> Pacers, right? The Tomasic T Wolves. Uh, you know, every, we can play that game for a while. But uh, so, so you know, Piff, we won't is, Piff is a fascinating one. The Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth, the the, the money behind Live Golf, a, a number of other investments across sports. Um, if Piff wanted to buy into the NBA, who knows if the NBA owners would approve that? My gut says they likely wouldn't. But as we've seen with the with the World Cup going on right now in in Qatar, um, there, there's a lot of trepidation, both both moral, political, um, c- civil rights violations. There's a lot of trepidation around different types of sovereign wealth money, depending on where in the world and who it's coming from. Um, I think the approval process is going to have to be particularly strict around that piece of it. Um, way less so than pension funds, which you mentioned up up in uh, up in Toronto had, had already invested in, in, 
in in the parent of the of the Toronto Ra- Raptors way back when. Um, but yeah, the sovereign wealth to me is the headline thing here, just because yeah. it's the most interesting and and is going to be if and when it happens the most controversial. You, you know you how you when when you're investing or when things happen and you look down the line and say who benefits from things and you like that's where you put your money if you're investing in a company. You know I think our friends at K two Integrity. You know, they do the due diligence on things like mm. sovereign wealth yeah, funds. Yeah, there you go. And, yeah, I, I right now I think I foresee uh, our, our friends over there getting uh, shout out Steve Herbst, uh, getting uh, maybe some new business. Right, you also wanted to talk about the NFL and Caesars. Um, first time we're seeing in the U.S. anyway. If I'm watching on the Caesars app and I want to bet a game, guess what? I can actually watch the game right there as well. That surprises me from the NFL, but here we are. Kind of a quiet little milestone here, Scott. <laughs> the Caesars, I, I don't know if they if they took a little bit into the second quarter uh, of the of the Cowboys-Colts game on Sunday night to get it up and running, or they just waited until then No, no, they wanted it, the first but... bet to be, will the Cowboys end up with 60? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in the middle of the second quarter, Caesars just announced, oh, by the way, we're streaming this game uh, on our app. Uh, this is common in, in, in Europe, in, in other mature gambling markets where operators obviously would like to have a single platform where you can both watch the game and bet on the next play, the next score, what the game's going to end up being. They see a lot more handle, a lot more betting action when you can do that all from the same place. Uh, and this is the first time the NFL has done this, as you said, in, in the U.S. The NFL about to start that new $115 billion worth of TV deals, Scott. But they're also looking at other smaller uh, things around the edges, ways to get their games in the hands of of more people. NFL Plus, which they just launched this year, uh, streams probably some of these same games uh, for $5 a month. Um, NFL Plus, be able to watch them on your mobile screen. So yeah, I think the, the main story here is the NFL is is fairly quietly just starting to get its games into more places on more types of devices. And, and not just its games. There's a reason why NFL Films and Skydance got together again about, 100%, uh, yeah. about uh, sports, entertainment, and content creation. Yeah, and and this is going to be uh, this comes through Genius Sports, which is the the data provider for for for, for the NFL. If if other sports books like Caesars want to do this, they're obviously going to have to pay for it. But I would imagine that that the big ones and, and the NFL's big partners are FanDuel, DraftKings, and Caesars. I would think that all three of them are going to eagerly pay up for this service to be able to offer select regular season and playoff games, Scott, and that surprised me, the playoff stuff, um, to be able to offer some of these streaming in their own apps. This may be the first podcast where Lara Toscani weems finishes her run before we finish talking. <laughs> that would be really bad because she runs for a really long time. So let, we'll hurry it up. But uh, lastly, a lot of NWSL news. We've got expansion stuff coming, but uh, the biggest news, uh, Thorns and Red Stars both for sale. Not necessarily surprising. Both these ownership groups have distanced themselves from their clubs in the wake of the Sally Yates report a few months ago, and, and we're still waiting on the NF, the NWSL and the NWSL players, their joint investigation, which I expect is going to come at some point in the next weeks or, or <laughs> not at the very months. Not expecting surprises there. Yeah, but this is, again, not a huge surprise, but in, in a world where there's already so many sports teams on the market, if you just look at NWSL, there is the expansion process that is still going on. Utah is going to be paying uh, uh, to, to join the league at some point soon. Now you have clubs in Chicago, a huge media market, and the club in Portland, which has been the flag bearer for the league for, for so long. That's four clubs in, in a 14-team league that, that are on the market right now. It's, it, that, that's a really, big, a really big number. So in the same way we talk about whether so many teams on the market is going to affect price, I do think it's at least 
interesting to wonder or at least talk about whether the fact that the theoretically four slots in NWSL are, are right now out there for, for the taking, really three if you just put Utah to the side, um, how much that affects the value of, of each of these franchises moving forward. I got to tell you, but the one thing that I was interested in seeing and a bit surprised is that Merritt Paulson has said he will sell the thorns, but he's going to hold on to the timbers. Yeah. And had, you know, had MLS support saying, and he's been a fine owner, we think he's going to continue to be a fine owner. I'm I'm really interested in how that process played out and that, you know, he he has to sell the one. I, I know this happened in the NWSL, not MLS, but if, if the findings of the report sort of uh, indict him as an owner on one league, how does it not then follow to the other league as well. But Absol- I, I absolutely. Don't I think have it's the answer. a really, I I think it's really good question. Yeah, I find it very interesting that that he has full support of MLS while this happened in the NWSL. Especially those two organizations, the Timbers and the Thorns, that are, are so, so closely, closely aligned. intertwined. Yeah. That so many employees that, that work on both, they play in the same building, they they use a lot of the same facilities. This is not like Robert Sarver, who owned the Suns in Mallorca and is selling the Suns and, and not selling Mallorca, which I think is also, a, you could ask that same question in that scenario too, but this is a, these are two organizations that are way more directly intertwined. All right, he is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter, Novi underscore Williams. I'm Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our digital media editor is Core Veltman. She loves me to remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of the growing Sportico Media Network. Hola, hasta pelit y Boris Gartner of La Previa, our Spanish language sports business podcast. <laughs>